Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host. Jerry Landry. As our regular listeners know, whether it's in the narrative series or the Seat at the Table special series, we're typically focused more on the people and events of U.S. presidential history of the early republic. However, occasionally an opportunity comes up to propel us forward a bit to subjects further along in the timeline. Due to our mutual association with Evergreen Podcast, I was able to extend an invitation to author, journalist, historian, and podcaster Paul Brandis to discuss his book released just this April entitled Countdown to Dallas, The Incredible Coincidences, Routines, and Blind Luck that Brought John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald Together on November 22, 1963. A historian and keynote speaker, including at seven presidential libraries, Paul Brandis is a columnist for USA Today and Dow Jones Market Watch and one of the most followed journalists in the White House press corps, with more than 375,000 Twitter followers at West Wing Report. He is the author of books on the White House and presidency, U.S. military, and former First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy. His podcast, Jackie, has won numerous awards. He lives in the Washington, D.C. area with his family. Paul and I had a great conversation about the history of presidential assassinations in the U.S., the Kennedy assassination in particular, and his research and career. Before we get into it, though, I do want to note that we do discuss domestic violence at one point in the interview when discussing Lee Harvey Oswald and his wife, Marina. The first mention is at the 28-minute mark and lasts for about a minute, and the second is around the 34-minute mark and lasts for about half a minute if you'd like to skip ahead. That said, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Paul, thank you so much for joining us here on Presidencies. Jerry, my pleasure. Thank you so much. We are so glad to have you here and to discuss your new book. Congratulations, by the way, on your new book, thank uh, you. which is Countdown to Dallas, The Incredible Coincidences, Routines, and Blind Luck, and luck is in quotation marks, that brought JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald together on November 22nd, 1963. So we're going a bit further in presidential history than we typically cover on presidencies, but your book is so fascinating and to talk about the lead up to this monumental event in presidential history. So to get us started and to start at the beginning, the introduction of your book is titled, Why Another Kennedy Book? So I feel it only fair to ask the question, what was your motivation to work on Countdown to Dallas? And what do you hope the reader will take away from it? Well, it's a good question and a fair one. And the reason why I thought another assassination book was needed was that because history is never static, of course, you know, the 50th anniversary of the assassination 
was 10 years ago, and there were a ton of books, TV shows, and so forth about that. But in the last 10 years, the government, uh, through the National Archives, has released about 55,000 documents related to that, a lot of CIA documents, FBI documents, State Department, and so forth. A lot of that, as I mentioned, relates to the assassination. So I thought the the narrative needed uh, an updating, just it needed to uh, a freshening up, if you will, because of all of these documents. What did they indicate that may have moved the needle one way or the other in terms of uh, the perception that either Oswald acted alone or was there a conspiracy? What did we learn from all these documents? So the story needed a freshening up. And the main thesis, again, is that history is never static. I mean, there are books that continue to come out about the Lincoln assassination, certainly, which was uh, 140, 150 years ago, 160 years ago at this point. So, so that's why I did it. So that's the question, why another Kennedy book? Because a history uh, rolls on. Absolutely. And, you know, we explore that on presidencies. We look at figures that have hundreds of books written about them, but trying to parse that together. And also, as you said, Paul, you know, new documents are discovered, new sources, and in particular with this trove of documents that's being released in a batch at a time. And knowing that we still have some documents that are yet to be released. You know, there could be something in there that yet again changes the narrative and changes how we view this monumental moment in presidential history. Drawing on that and and kind of taking kind of where you start with this book, you know, you go through the batches of documents that have been released from the National Archives and look at each batch and kind of take the reader through what's in those documents and what relevance it has, but there are still some remaining. And so, Paul, what are your thoughts on the reason for this continual delay in releasing the remainder of the documents related to the Kennedy assassination? Well, even 30 years ago, about 97, 98% of all documents were released. So we're really down at this point to about 12 to 15,000 documents, probably that have yet to be released. And conspiracists, of course, think that, uh, well, the fact that they're dragging this out, that there are still 12 to 15,000 documents show that the government is trying to uh, hide something. In other words, they're trying to hide some involvement of CIA officials or someone in a conspiracy. That's what they think. The more likely reason uh, in all probability, I think, is the fact that uh, there are two things. Uh, one, after 60 years, it's entirely possible that in some cases, either in uh, Moscow or in communist Cuba, for example, there may in fact still be people who are still alive who the U.S. government uh, wishes to protect. It could be that they wish to protect uh, the families, the descendants of these people. It's possible that they wish to protect uh, sources and methods that are used to collect intelligence. Uh, that's the first reason. The second reason, perhaps, is a more bureaucratic one, and that is that uh, the CIA and the FBI, other government agencies, probably had uh, bureaucratic uh, screw-ups that they want to cover up. I mean, we all know that 
For example, uh, even today, the government screws up. They might put the wrong person on an FAA or TSA no-fly list, for example. They might screw up someone's uh, tax returns. They might screw up, you know, any number of things. You know, bureaucracies are people. Sometimes uh, bureaucratic mistakes like the ones I just mentioned can happen. It very well could be that uh, these government agencies are simply trying to uh, cover up embarrassing screw-ups that they had, too. I mean, we don't know for sure, but those are, I think, two uh, reasonable explanations as to why some of these documents have yet to be released. But again, conspiracists will say uh, they're sure that, uh, that there's a third reason that these documents have not been released because someone, some organization, something, some shadowy group or group of individuals where whatever in the government was involved in the assassination, and that's what they're trying to cover up. There's no evidence uh, to indicate, uh, no, no verifiable, conclusive evidence at least, to indicate that that's the reason. So that's probably why these things, after all this time, have yet to be released. But again, twelve to 15,000 documents sounds like a lot, but that's uh, set against the backdrop of maybe 98, 99% of everything that actually has been released. Absolutely. Well, and Paul, in your book, Countdowns Dallas, you, I think you do a great job of weaving in and helping us to understand that the aftermath of the assassination, there were foreign relations matters to consider, and that was part of the investigation. It dealt with international travel that Oswald did and trying to piece this together. So there are those those foreign relations and, and foreign concerns. But then also in your book, you talk about that there were times where you know Oswald or others would show up on a list and then disappear. And so trying to make sure that there wasn't a screw up or if there was a screw up, maybe trying to hide that or trying to put that away. So it's interesting, you know, you make the point throughout the book that these things were in consideration and are woven into this larger story, this larger historical story. And I also like one of the things that you do in the book is you put it in the context of presidential history. You know, we think of the Kennedy assassination, but it's one of many presidential assassinations throughout history or or attempted assassinations. And you really do a good job of grounding this in that larger historical context. And one of the things that you do in this book is highlight how lax security around the president was prior to the Kennedy assassination. You have concrete examples of when there were so many instances that anybody had access to the president and an assassination could have happened. You talk about, you detail this lack security. What primary factor do you attribute to the approach to security changing after November 22nd, 1963 that wasn't present in the aftermath of the various assassinations and assassination attempts on presidents prior to Kennedy? Well, there's a key point that uh, I make in one chapter Jerry, which I call uh, a different era. And the era before the assassination was, uh, in my view, a more innocent time in America. 
course, we had three presidential assassinations within a period of 36 years in 1865 when Lincoln was killed, 1881 when Garfield was killed, and then in 1901 when William McKinley was killed, three within 36 years. After that, however, it was 62 years before President Kennedy was killed. So 62 years, that's essentially a lifetime. And that was an era in which uh, I wouldn't say the country was innocent, but assassinations simply did not occur. There were security uh, uh, scares. There was a very serious assassination attempt against Harry Truman in 1951. There were issues against uh, with uh, President Eisenhower's uh, safety and so forth. But it was a very different era, and that was reflected in often the level of security that was around presidents. I'll give you an example. For example, the uh, the attempted assassination that I mentioned of Franklin Roosevelt in February 1933. Presidents back then were inaugurated on March the 4th. So he's the president-elect. He's in Miami with the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak, in an open car. Shots ring out. Uh, Roosevelt is not hit, but uh, Mayor Cermak was, again, the mayor of Chicago. He was killed. Uh, So very close call with Franklin Roosevelt. And yet just two weeks later, Roosevelt, in an open car, drives to his inauguration in Washington with outgoing President Herbert Hoover. They ride in an open car down Pennsylvania Avenue. Of course, everybody knew the route they would take. That's the traditional route from the White House to Ped 2 Capitol Hill that people take. Everybody knew that FDR and Hoover would be going down that street in an open car, and they knew what time they would be leaving. So again, talk about an innocent era. The guy barely survives an assassination attempt. Uh, Three weeks later, an open car, Pennsylvania Avenue. It was a very different era. Now, there were times in the Roosevelt presidency, times during the uh, the the Truman presidency, the Eisenhower presidency, and in fact during the Kennedy presidency, when in fact security uh, was more stringent, when they did not ride in open cars and that kind of thing. But uh, very often they did ride in open cars. The four presidents that I mentioned, and the reason for that is because presidents are politicians. They like to be seen by the public. They don't want to be covered up. Presidents all wanted to be seen by the voters. Uh, That's what uh, FDR did. Again, Truman, Eisenhower, and uh, Kennedy. But depending on the circumstances, uh, sometimes they had a roof on the car, but the roofs on the cars were not uh, bulletproof. They simply shielded presidents from, from the elements, from the rain or the wind or that kind of thing. Sometimes there were agents on the car. Sometimes the agents were relegated to the follow-up car a few feet behind the president. Uh, You can have conspiracists who will, you can go onto the internet and find any kind of photo that you want to support whatever theory you have about all of this, but a broad data sample, and there are about 24 pictures in my book that show, again, it was a very different era. There are pictures of Harry Truman standing up in an open car, riding through the streets with tall buildings around him, open windows all around him. There are pictures of 
President Eisenhower uh, abroad in places like Pakistan and Iran and uh, other countries, again, in an open car with agents sometimes around him, some sometimes not. So again, the broad answer here is, is that it was a very different era, um, which ended on November the 22nd, 1963. But even after that, presidents occasionally could be seen riding uh, with the top down, or at least on a limo, with had kind of a sunroof. They'd be kind of you know standing up in the sunroof, uh, exposed. So, and they did that because, uh, again, to this day, uh, politicians want to be seen by the voters. So that's why. It's a long answer, but uh, that's uh, essentially the answer. Absolutely. Well, and you make that point that you know conspiracy theorists will draw on these points. Well. Why was this decision made? Why wasn't the president more protected here? Why did this happen? And I think you do a great job in your book of explaining those whys. You know, why was the car open? And why did presidents go up to people and start to shake hands without anybody being vetted or anything like that? And and it's as simple as they're politicians. They want it to be seen. They want it to have that connection with the people. The whole point of the Dallas trip was to get votes, to get support, to be able to run in 64. And so it's one of those points that conspiracy theorists strong, but whenever you put it into that larger context, it makes sense of why these decisions were made and who made them. And it takes some, some of that conspiracy away from it it was just a political matter and that's well that was the time well again with all due respect to the conspiracy theorists uh i always think that a broader uh data sample is uh, needed uh i think it's important to go back and look at well what did other presidents do prior to 1963 and i answered that previously um, there's something else about that, and that is some people think it's kind of a fishy, for example, that uh, you know the top was a down that day in Dallas. And again, it was not bulletproof. It was uh, simply to protect presidents from the elements, from the wind and rain. But the ultimate decision to have the top down that day was made by Kenneth O'Donnell, who happened to be President Kennedy's uh, top aide in the White House. There was a standing order and understanding, if you will, that if the weather was good, then the top would be down on the car, if the weather was good. Uh, It was not good that morning. It had been raining in Fort Worth. There were concerns that uh, the top might be needed in Dallas if the weather was uh, not cooperating. But uh, at the last minute, uh, the skies did clear. It became uh, bright and sunny, a beautiful day. It was uh, Kennedy weather, as his aides like to call it. So at the last minute, uh, Kenny O'Donnell said, if the weather is good, have the top down on the car. It was a standing order, an understanding that if the weather was always good, uh, keep the top down so the president can be seen. So it's not any kind of sinister thing that was behind the taking down of the top that day. It was simply, again, uh, the weather turned in their favor and they wanted it down so the president could be seen. That's uh, that's all that it is. That's a simple explanation, but sometimes conspiracists think that, there's, well, surely there's something more to it, but there's really not. Well, and, and turning to those 
conspiracy theories for a moment, because you know, when you're talking about the Kennedy assassination, of course, that is a part of the aftermath. You know, there have been so many conspiracy theories thrown about over the years. And at various points in your work, you note anomalies that conspiracy theorists have fixated on, but which you point out can be easily explained. So what do you think has caused folks over the years to, as you quote it, Vincent Bugliosi is saying, quote, split hairs and then proceeded to split the split hairs, drawn far-fetched and wholly unreasonable inferences from known facts and literally invented bogus facts from the grist of rumor and speculation. Well, the, uh, the, the, the answer to that is, and again, I empathize with their reasoning here, but I think that, uh, in my view, the assassination, you called it a monstrous thing, and it certainly was. The Kennedy assassination was such, such a vast crime. It was literally an earth-shattering crime. It was the crime that literally shook the world. It was just an enormous event. Um, a lot of people, and, and I'm one of them, it's just stunning that a nothing like Lee Harvey Oswald, and we can go into his character and background and so forth uh, in a minute, if you wish, but it's almost incomprehensible that someone like him, one guy, could so easily wipe off the face of the earth the most powerful person in the world. It's just, it's so hard to comprehend that someone like that could do something like that. The assassination was uh, it occurred so quickly, so easily, so casually that people just can't believe that th- that could happen, but it did. I empathize with people who think, well, uh, again, it was such a monstrous thing, such a vast crime. Uh, clearly, there had to have been someone else uh, behind it in addition to Oswald, but there's no, again, the phrase I used before, there's no verifiable, conclusive evidence that there was. Yes. Yes. And thinking about the context of it. And one of the things that I was struck with as we were getting towards the end of your book, you highlight the various people that had video cameras there and this new technology and how this helped to shape and reshape how we, first of all, figure out what happened and B, process it. And this was a time that things were changing. Technology was changing and how people interacted and processed news and events changed. And this was a monumental event that was broadcast across the world. You know, the news went across the world at a speed that, you know, you didn't have with the Lincoln assassination, for example. And right. it's definitely in that context, you know, you, you see, and I think you, in your work, interject how some of these changes impact not only the event, but also the lead up to the event and some of the individuals involved. And you had mentioned Oswald, and he's one of them that, that you note how new media changed him and shaped him. And for that, I'd like to actually focus in on, um, because you mentioned in your book, the influence that a television drama called I Led Three Lives, which aired from the fall of 1953 to New Year's Day 1956, had on Lee Harvey Oswald. Would you mind sharing with our listeners more about this show and the impact that you saw that it had on Oswald 
who was at this point in his mid to late teens. Well, I Led Three Lives was a show that uh, focused on like, double agents and triple agents and espionage and uh, shadowy feats of daring do and, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, Oswald, according to uh, his brother Robert, uh, one of his older brothers, uh, said that Oswald was absolutely riveted to this show. He watched it constantly, and when he was on home leave, when he was in the Marine Corps, he would continue to watch reruns for the rest of his life. It was just uh, the most riveting thing to him. He was just captivated uh, with the life that the characters in this show led. Again, uh, spies and espionage and shadowy uh, you know, goings-on and this and that. He was riveted uh, by that. So on some level, uh, that kind of uh, life kind of uh, became part of his thinking, and uh, he wished to have a, a life like that. And at the time when he was watching this show, uh, Oswald was a very solitary, lonely figure when he was growing up. His mother, Marguerite, uh, had a couple of marriages. They moved constantly. And when I say moved constantly, uh, he moved about 21 different times before he dropped out of high school. He was born in 1939, drops out of high school in 56 to join the Marine Corps. So in the ensuing 17-year period, moved 21 times, more than once a year. So that kind of uh, instability, he did not really have uh, time to make uh, any friends because he was moving every couple of months. Uh, so his friend uh, was really this uh, fantasy world of TV shows and uh, comic books and things like that. So uh, I think gradually over time, he descended into this fantasy life that I described that was always with him. And when he was living in the Soviet Union, at one point, uh, he and his wife, uh, Marina, went to a movie in which uh, the Soviet character was, you know, defeating Western spies. And Oswald came out of the theater and said, I wish I had a, a life like that. It's just so fascinating. So uh, again, throughout his life, we see evidence based on the content that he consumed, that he was just fascinated with you know, this kind of a sort of a trench coat kind of existence. It's just a fascinating uh, part of him that a lot of folks don't really explore. I think when people look at the assassination, Jerry, they tend to look at, you know, things that happened that day or the few days before the assassination. Again, I thought it'd be more interesting to take kind of a deeper dive into Oswald's life, look at uh, his influences uh, growing up and uh, the TV show that I mentioned uh, that's one of them. It's really interesting. Well, and I have to admit, Paul, I was so interested in I Led Three Lives. I actually found a DVD copy with a few of the episodes. And I was like, I just need to watch this and kind of get the context. And it it is kind of exactly as you described, like this trench coat, you know, double, triple agent. Right. And it, it you can see where somebody in their teens that that would be fascinating to them. And especially somebody with such an unstable living situation. If you, if you are, again, he didn't have any friends because he was moving all the time. And uh, Oswald also is associated uh, in his youth with some violent streaks. At one point, he 
who pulled a knife on a relative who asked him to turn down uh, the television, and he uh, got in the occasional scrape in school. It's hardly unusual. I mean, kids get into you know trouble from time to time. Um, but uh, at one point, he would uh, you know lash out at his mother, and he was also known as when he was married to Marina, and this is what Marina herself said, uh, he beat her mercilessly when they came back to the United States. There's another book that I'd like to recommend to anyone listening to this called The Marina and Lee, written by a woman named Priscilla Johnson McMillan, in which after the assassination, uh, she spent many, many months with Marina, getting to know her, getting uh, getting her to talk about her uh, late husband and all of that. So that's where the story of the vicious uh, you know, wife beating that Oswald was came into play. So when people study the assassination, I think it's important to look at Oswald in a much broader and deeper sense rather than just, you know, examine that day itself. It's not enough. Uh, you need to look at him in a much broader context, I think. And when you do, it'll give you a better understanding and reasoning as to what led him to that sixth floor corner window on November the 22nd. Absolutely. And, you know, and having that context, you know, we, we see studies nowadays about the impact of media on kids and as adolescents, as they're growing up and, you know, and especially if they have turbulent home lives, you know, how that can impact. These are things that, you know, we see clinically some of the same, trends and some of the same impacts and you know taking this back to that time it's it it makes sense and it it really does help to understand oswald and his motivations and where he was at you know mentally emotionally and uh, yeah that's that was one of the most fascinating things about your book being able to put it in that context being able to understand him in that context I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Well, he clearly, again, he just clearly had a extraordinarily unstable upbringing and yeah. uh, it was not normal. And uh, yeah, so it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned his wife, Marina, and that was one of the points that I wanted to ask you about, because in one of the KGB surveillance transcripts that you include during Oswald's time in the Soviet Union, you note this dispute between Lee and his wife, Marina, in which she says, quote, why are you afraid of people? What scared you? You're afraid of everybody. Did you find this true in the course of your research and your study of Oswald? And if so, how did it manifest in Oswald's life? 
Well, he was certainly an interesting uh, study in terms of his personality. In 1953, uh, he and Marguerite were living in New York City, again, one of these uh, part of the 21 moves that he had between 39 and 56. And there are some violent episodes when he lived in uh, New York. I'll just tell you one is that at some point uh, he acquired a BB gun and would often sit out on the stoop of his uh, one of the buildings that he lived in and uh, fire at uh, just the BB gun at one of the other uh, buildings. And he got in a little bit of uh, hot water for that. Uh, just kind of a, a illustrative uh, example of uh, who he was. Uh, at one point in 1953, he uh, was diagnosed by a New York uh, psychiatrist as, as potentially dangerous, potentially unstable. Again, this was 10 years before the assassination. So it's really uh, interesting. And your your specific question was, well, how did all that kind of media he consumed uh, change him? I think, again, these incidents that I described, the violent episodes and the BB gun and this and that, occurred at the same time as he was watching these uh, TV shows and reading his, you know, comic books and things like that. So it all kinds of, kind of, uh, you know, comes together. Uh, why he was afraid of things? Mm. I think that comment by Marina needs a little bit of further exploration. But she knew shortly after they got married that he was kind of an odd uh, figure. When they came back to America, it was interesting that there was a little bit of a role reversal. When they were in the Soviet Union, when Oswald first got there in the fall of 1959, he was kind of an interesting figure to Soviets who interacted with him because, you know, Americans just didn't show up in Russia every day looking to uh, defect. So he was, for an initial period at least, kind of a, a figure of curiosity. But over time, that wore off, and he didn't really have that much to uh, contribute or add after a certain period. But when they came to America in June of 1962, uh, the roles were reversed. All of a sudden, Marina, who is a very attractive young woman, she was born in 1941, a very young, very pretty. Uh, she was of great interest to the Russian community in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Everybody wanted to talk to her, uh, get kind of an update on what life was uh, like in the Soviet Union. She was lively and engaging, uh, just a wonderful woman. Ali, on the other hand, uh, was not regarded as a particularly interesting or intelligent uh, figure. Uh, he was the guy who defected. Uh, so a lot of the people in the Russian community uh, didn't uh, trust him. He was kind of glum and morose and uh, flitted from job to job. So uh, Marina was the attraction, uh, not Lee. And so for the year and a half that they were back in America, uh, she was quite popular uh, he was not, and as I mentioned, the wife-beating uh, episodes, she would sometimes have uh, bruises and marks on her face, and people would uh, see that. Uh, that turned them even further against Lee. He really turned himself into a kind of a persona non grata figure within the Russian community, uh, and at the time of the assassination, 
uh, almost no one in that community was talking to him. So it was interesting kind of a role reversal. So whether he was afraid of anybody, uh, I'm not sure that's quite the right uh, phrase that she used, but uh, he clearly had uh, psychological problems, uh, didn't really fit in anywhere he went and all of that, uh, all of that stuff. So how all of that figures in, again, and placing him in that window that day is just part of, again, the broader study that people should undertake when they look at the assassination. Absolutely. And for my part, the impression that I've gotten, and of course, you know, would need to do really more research to build a firm foundation for this, but the impression that I got, you know, thinking of this idea of Oswald having kind of this fantasy world, fantasy life going on in his head. And then, yeah. you know, you see it in numerous times when he, you know, he joined the Marines. It didn't work out. It wasn't exactly what he pictured. He defected to, or tried to defect to the Soviet union and that didn't work out kind of how he planned. He came back. That wasn't working out as he planned. It almost seemed like it was not necessarily a, a fear of people, but of reality and lashing out, you know, this, these constant instances of violence that you note in your book. It's this lashing out at being faced with a reality where he's not the person that he wants to be, things aren't as he'd like them to be. Well, as you mentioned yourself just a minute ago, nothing worked out uh, for him. Uh, he became uh, disillusioned uh, over time. Uh, he had these uh, delusions of grandeur that obviously were just that uh, delusional. At one point, he told Marina that I'm going to be the prime minister of America in 20 years, not realizing, of course, that uh, we don't have a prime minister in this country, but he actually thought he was destined for greatness. And at one point uh, in late uh, 50s, in fact, when he was in the, uh, you know, the Marine Corps, he told one of his uh, fellow Leathernecks that uh, one day he would do something that would uh, make him famous for 10,000 years. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, that's kind of an interesting comment at the time of uh, the other Marine, and I detail this in the book, didn't really give any second thought to it, but in retrospect, boy, that's kind of an interesting you know, comment uh, to make. And Oswald uh, sadly will be remembered for quite a while, but uh, obviously not, uh, not in a good way. Absolutely. And that was actually one of the notes that I had, because you had quoted a portion of Max Clark's testimony to the Warren Commission. And he uh, you quoted Clark as saying, quote, my general impression was he, i.e. Oswald, wanted to become famous or infamous. That seems to be his whole life ambition was to become somebody. And I, I think you come back to that at numerous points in your book. Well, he clearly did want to be someone when he was living in uh, New Orleans in the summer of 63. Uh, he, because of his work with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was really just a one-man organization. He tried to portray it as some kind of, you know, big organization. He was, as far as, as we can tell, was the only uh, member. Uh, that got him on a local radio show when he talked about it, and he thought that made him kind of a media figure. He was on a radio show, and uh, but then he was invited back to that radio show 
about a week later and in the ensuing uh, seven days between the two appearances, the host of that show digged a little deeper into Oswald and uh, found out that, uh, you know, uh, he was the guy who, who defected to Russia and this and that. And he really kind of embarrassed Oswald just by uh, asking him these questions about his background that Oswald uh, had tried to uh, hide. But Oswald thought that the fact that, uh, you know, he was on uh, the radio, uh, there was a picture of him in the paper uh, handing out leaflets one day about his uh, Cuba committee. He actually thought that he was kind of a, you know, somewhat uh, prominent uh, person. Of course, he was just a quirky guy who wound up on kind of a, you know, low rent radio program. But uh, again, he just, uh, he, he liked whatever attention he could get. No question about it. Yeah. yeah and, and I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, at one point, I think it was when uh, they were coming back from the Soviet Union and he arrived and asked his brother, you know, where are the papers? You know, where are the, the reporters? reporters? Yeah. You know, that he yeah. he genuinely expected that he was, you know, people were going to be waiting for him and wanting to interview him and just was disappointed. Where are they? You know, we live in this, uh, he was sort of a, Maybe I'm uh, making too much of it, but, uh, you know, we live today in a pretty narcissistic uh, society where people Instagram every, you know, every uh, sandwich that they eat and this kind of thing. And uh, maybe he was an early, he, he, he was sort of delusional about uh, uh, the attention that other people would uh, place in him. He just thought he would be the center of attention. He went to the Soviet Union. Uh, he got a lot of attention for a couple of weeks, maybe a few months, and then all that wore off when people realized, ah, it's just a young kid, doesn't have much to offer. And then when he came back to the United States, as I mentioned, uh, you know, a guy from goes from menial job to menial job, uh, is not making a lot of money, doesn't have a lot to contribute. He's a high school dropout. He was not overly intelligent. Uh, so he did not uh, have the background, the education, uh, the connections, what have you, to uh, give him any reason to think that he was special. But of course, he thought that he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating to learn more about him through your book and through your work. And, you know, it, it really helped to flesh him out as a, a full human being to help to try and understand some of his motivation of what led him to that point. And there are so many individuals that you cover in your work that, you know, we could go in many different directions, but I wanted to take an opportunity to kind of take us in a way that would tie this back to your previous book and podcast on Jackie Kennedy. And mm. she later became Jackie Kennedy Onassis. So I was wondering, Paul, if you could share with us what you feel was the longest lasting impact that this tragedy had on the First Lady. You mentioned in your work on Jackie that she lived with this trauma for the remainder of her life. She did. But, but what do you feel is the greatest way that it shaped who she was after November 22nd, 1963? Well, the main thing was that uh, a phrase we have today, post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, PTSD, uh, I think it's called post-traumatic stress uh, disease, uh, was not something that was really diagnosed in 1963, but that is what she had. Uh, what happened that day 
scarred her uh, quite understandably, I think, for the rest of her life. She became extraordinarily security conscious. Uh, she Security was, uh, I think, front and center with everything that she did. She was extraordinarily protective of her two children, Caroline and John Jr. She left, uh, she bought, uh, after, the, after the assassination, she moved two weeks later into a home in Georgetown temporarily until she could find something to buy a couple of weeks later, which happened to be just across the street. But uh, there was little security there. She had lost uh, most of her Secret Service uh, coverage, Clint Hill, stayed with her into 1964, but when she moved to uh, New York, she had another agent. But the building that she chose to live in, 1045th Avenue, which if anybody knowing Manhattan, the corner of 5th Avenue and 85th Street, uh, was a high-security building, a co-op with not just a, a Secret Service agent with her, but there were doormen in that building who were just extraordinarily protective of her security and her privacy. Uh, she required that, not just for herself, but for her children. Again, perfectly understandable given the trauma that she had been through. So for the rest of her life, she was just deeply conscious of uh, security concerns. Uh, all of that was exacerbated, in fact, after the assassination of Robert Kennedy in 1968, just uh, not even five years, four and a half years after her husband was killed, uh, Robert Kennedy, of course, was killed. And I think that was the event that uh, drove her once and for all into the arms of Aristotle Onassis, because Onassis uh, was fabulously wealthy, had a private island in the uh, Aegean Sea, Scorpios. It literally had a private army uh, security guards well beyond anything the Secret Service could ever provide. He also had just gobs of money. She did not have a lot of money. People think that Jackie was a loaded. No, she married into money, did not have a lot on her own. Uh, so she married Onassis. He offered everything that she needed, security, not just physical security, but financial security as well. She was deeply concerned about the safety of her children. At one point, uh, she had said, if they're killing Kennedys, uh, my children could be targets. I want to get out of America. Who could blame her after everything that she had uh, been through? So for the rest of her life, she lived uh, 30 years. She died in 1994, about three decades beyond the assassination. She was, uh, was extraordinarily uh, important issue to her. She always had a, a fear for the rest of her life of a loud, sudden, sharp noises. I write about one uh, anecdote where she's at uh, the opera in the 1960s, early 1968, and the opera was a Don Quixote. Uh, in the opera Don Quixote, there's a, a gunshot. It's part of the show, part of the opera, where you know a gun goes off. She did not know that. And when she heard that sharp uh, gun go off in the theater, she jumped out of her seat, nearly fell out of the balcony. She was so startled and frightened by it. So that's sort of what she uh, went through for uh, the rest of her life. So again, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome was not something that was 
uh, clinically diagnosed as a thing in 1963, but uh, people today think that, uh, well, that's clearly what she had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as often happens when I do a read of a presidential history book, I usually end up with a list of books to add to the to read list afterwards. And your book on Jackie O is one uh, you had drawn on Clint Hill's work of his time as a secret service agent serving numerous presidents. That's another. So I've got those on the to read pile and look forward to getting to those. Uh, for listeners, I'll share information about Paul's other book as well as his podcast uh, from First Lady to Jackie O, which is another podcast from the Evergreen Podcast Network, just like Presidencies. I'll share that around the release of this episode so that you can learn more as well, because it is just a fascinating and tragic, you know, it, you really get to the trauma that Jackie lived with for the rest of her life and being somebody who was a, a public persona and having to process all of that grief and trauma while in the spotlight, you, you really bring that home for listeners and readers. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, just a remarkable, uh, figure and, uh, a tragic figure, really. You just have to empathize with, uh, what she went through and people again to come back to Onassis when she married him, a lot of people were uh, shocked, but they had actually known each other for quite a long time, uh, almost as long as she knew uh, JFK. In fact, uh, they all met on the South of uh, Fran Monaco, in fact, in the early fifties. Uh, and what people don't know also is that on the weekend of the assassination itself, uh, Aristotle Onassis was actually a guest in the White House the very weekend of the assassination. He was in uh, Hamburg, Germany, when Kennedy was killed. He immediately flew across the Atlantic. He was invited by the State Department of Protocol Office to come to Washington, and uh, he was a guest in the White House that very weekend as the president's coffin lay downstairs in the East Room. It's really a remarkable uh, story that a lot of people aren't aware of. So the fact that she uh, married him uh, surprised a lot of people, but people who kind of you know, knew the background and knew how they had interacted and known each other for years really shouldn't have been all that surprised by it. Yeah. Well, and, and when you mentioned that he was at the White House that weekend, I was just, yeah. I was just amazed. And I highly encourage our listeners to listen to that podcast because there's so much there and then read the book to learn more. I'm, I know I'm looking forward to diving in a bit more to her history. And speaking of the White House, Paul, since you are to date the first White House correspondent that we've had on presidencies, I can't resist the opportunity to just ask if you'd be willing to share just a little about what that experience is like and if there's a particular moment in your career as a White House correspondent that really stands out to you. Well, it's interesting to go into the White House and, you know, when the pandemic occurred, briefings stopped occurring and all of that. But in general, when you go into the White House today, and it's been like this all the time, uh, it's still a, a great thrill to walk through those gates and into that 
uh, building. As you know, every president since uh, John Adams has lived there, every single one, along with their families. Just the the history, the stories, the personalities that uh, kind of uh, are, are still present in that building. I feel all of that. And when I walk around, you know, there are, you can't really go to that many places. You're kind of hemmed into the briefing room area and all that. But uh, nevertheless, if you go to an event in the East Room or the Oval Office or something like that, uh, it's really just, uh, you know, a chill goes down your spine to just look at that, that desk or the it'd be in the East Room or something. And so this is where the presidents uh, worked and lived and partied and where their families had all kinds of events. It's just uh, remarkable to be there and realize that uh, you are uh, walking through these halls of history that... Uh, I just have never gotten over. It's just a real a privilege just to uh, just to go in there. Absolutely. And I encourage everyone, if you've never taken the White House tour, by the way, uh, please do so. It's your building. It's the people's house. And to take the White House tour just because of uh, security concerns, of course, uh, the way to do it is to go through your member of Congress, uh, call them, email them, and they can help arrange uh, tickets, but uh, please do take the tour. It's uh, fascinating, and uh, I think uh, hopefully you'll get that same uh, you know feeling that I have every time that I go in. That this is just a very uh, special place. Absolutely, there is something about that just physical presence in buildings like the White House that you know pictures, anything, descriptions just can't do it justice. You've just got to be there. I think that's right. Well, and Paul, as we wrap up our conversation, I want to give you a chance to share with the audience where your research interests are leading you next. Well, I don't know. I'm helping my daughter with a, a book right now. In fact, that, that comes out in uh, September. She's 11 and has written wow. a book. Uh, we've interviewed uh, 50 of the most successful women in America in a variety of fields. It's called Girl to Boss, where we talk to them. How did you make it? Uh, what advice do you have for young girls and that kind of thing? So that's kind of taking up my time now, but there are other things that I'm uh, thinking about. Uh, I'm not quite sure yet. I worked in Russia for a long time and maybe something to do with the Russia. Uh, I don't know, but uh, boy, there's a, there's a lot to write about, a lot of interesting topics. I'm, I'm open for any ideas. So if you have any you'd like to me, uh, I'm all ears. Absolutely. And and that's the thing about presidential history and history in general. It can take you in so many different directions. Sometimes yeah. it's hard to just narrow down and focus in on just one. But you know, we look forward to wherever the journey leads you, we're there with you and would love to have you, you know, once you're on that path, have you back on presidencies and talk more about what's next in terms of your research. Well, thank you very much. I'd be honored. Because I cannot encourage our listeners enough to pick up Countdown to Dallas by Paul Brandis. It is a fascinating work. It looks at various facets of the JFK assassination, of the life of Lee Harvey Oswald, and what brought these two people together on that fateful day in November 1963. I highly encourage you to check it out. I'll be posting more information on the website and on my social media around the release of this episode. So be sure to check it out. 
Paul, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your insight and expertise with our audience, and just cannot thank you enough. Jared, it's a great honor for me to appear. Thank you so much, and look forward to uh, coming back someday. Absolutely. Look forward to it, Paul. Okay, thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed participating in it. Thanks so much again to Paul Brandis for agreeing to come on Presidencies to discuss his latest book, Countdown to Dallas, The Incredible Coincidences, Routines, and Blind Luck, that brought John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald together on November 22, 1963. Available in all the major book retailers, or check with your local bookstore to see if they can get you a copy. Thanks so much to Gerardo Orlando of Evergreen Podcast for connecting Paul and me, and thanks so much as always to all the great folks at Evergreen. If you haven't already, I recommend that you check out Paul's podcast from First Lady to Jackie O, as well as all the great podcasts available on Evergreen. Just go to evergreenpodcast.com to check out what they have to offer. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of Presidencies or get links to more information about JFK or any of the U.S. presidents, check out my website at presidenciespodcast.com. Please feel free to reach out to me with any questions or comments via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media if you haven't already. I'm available on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post as Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Thanks so much again for listening. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.